Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we got a tiny problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. Some of you might know that producer Sean helped me record this free podcast novel, but when it was done, there was nothing left for him to do but wander the world like David Carradine in Kung Fu, without as much autoerotic asphyxiation. The point is, we're ready to kick off the second season of Ruins of Empire, which means I need to get producer Sean off the road and back into the recording studio. So to help with that, I've got the second book of the Ruins of Empire series on pre-release on Kickstarter. There, you have the chance to get a signed hardback or paperback copy of Templum Venerus, or you can get Saturnius Mons and Templum Venerus together, or you can just throw a dollar in the pot. Everyone who contributes gets their name in the acknowledgments section of Templum Venerus, and will prove that people actually give a crap about this little project and producer Sean's role in it. I'm still not going to pay him, just to be clear, but I think the idea that I could might just be enough to get him to suffer through another recording session. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, book one of the Ruins of Empire project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones. Read by the author and Tyler Murphy. The story so far. The members of the Human Reconnection Project landed on Titan and immediately began butting heads with Corporation officials. A Corporation Marine and spy met with Vago Spade to size him up while he was trying to retrieve his guns from the Corporation Armory, and Isra Jacario had to persuade Corporate Dock Security to allow them to carry several locked crates along with them on their mission. When the team was equipped and supplied, they found they had one more member joining them by the name of Cronus, an expert in old internet technology. Together, they set out along the coast toward the possible location of the lost city on Titan. Chapter 4 Ostensibly, the corporation was formed to manage the planet's resources but its structure has always been, and remains, self-serving in nature. Individuals and organizations at the top reap the greatest benefits while the rest are met to scramble for the remains. In times of plenty, people are willing to forgive the excesses of a small portion of the population. But when thousands are starving in the streets, the winds of change blow strong, and it is the top that sways the most. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization, by Martin Raff. Vigo walked in silence ahead of the crawler. He felt the thick, stinking breeze blowing off the Lagia Mar, and watched as the waves rolled onto a beach made of marble-sized pebbles. Each time the waves receded, it sounded like a thousand bubbles popping at the same time. It was enough to drown out the mechanical whine of the crawler behind him. Farther away in the water, the pebbles became sand, and then soil, and disappeared into thick ferns and towering trees the tops of which disappeared into the clouds. Kronos, laying on top of the crates, reached out and touched invisible things with a metal device wrapped around his arm. He was lost and content in a world of his own, while Thea drove the crawler with all the speed that name would imply. Vago, progress report, please, said Isra, walking beside the all-terrain vehicle. Isra seemed to be in a good mood. She didn't normally use the word please outside of diplomatic talks, she probably supposed that it was a waste of time. 
Vico pressed a button on his arm and read the data on the screen. We're clearing the ground at a decent rate, maintaining a steady pace of about 5.5 kilometers per hour. If we keep this up, we could be knocking on someone's door in time for dinner. Easter nodded, satisfied. It will take Laban and his men several hours to set up for hydrocarbon extraction. At this pace, it is possible to get to the location, find proof of civilization, and put a halt to his operation before it even gets started. On top of the stack of cargo crates, Kronos sneezed. A rustling sound in the trees overhead caught Vago's attention. He looked up to see a bird with a wingspan as large as a condor leap from the canopy and glide over the Lagia Mar. Farther down the coast, one of these trees was in full bloom. The flowers added an explosion of color to the bleak, orange sky. Vago smiled at the serene beauty of this place. It was like a massive wildcat dozing in the afternoon sun. Beautiful, majestic, and likely to leave you bleeding out on the ground if the situation goes wrong. The breeze coming off the water died down. Vago stopped in his tracks and sniffed the air. Althea parked the crawler next to him. Vago, said Isra, why did you stop? Vago stuck his nose in the air and took a long breath in. Something's wrong. From the top of the crates, Kronos launched into a minor coughing fit. Isra looked from the forests to the sea, but nothing moved except the leaves and the wind. What is it? Something don't belong. I smell the sea, the leaves, the flowers, and... Something else. Something that ain't natural. It's faint, though. Can't quite nail it down. Is it dangerous? Vigo watched the coast behind them, but nothing moved. It's still a ways away. Could be nothing. Still, the best thing to do is to try and put some distance between it and us. Kronos launched into another coughing fit. This one was not so minor. He sounded like his guts were planning a quick and violent escape. Althea looked over her shoulder. Kronos, are you alright? Kronos wheezed, coughed for a few more seconds, and rolled off the top of the crates. He landed on the pebbly ground with a heavy crunch. Althea jumped out of the driver's seat, grabbed her black medical bag out of the back and rushed to where he lay on the ground, gasping for air. Isra and Vico both knelt down beside him as well. Somehow, in the couple of hours since they left the landing zone, Cronus's head had swelled to the point that he now looked like a pale, distressed pumpkin. He clawed at his throat with fat hands that used to have much longer fingers. Kronos, said Althea with practiced calm. Kronos, look at me. Can you speak? Kronos wheezed and started weakly coughing again, gasping for air as if choking to death. What is wrong with him? said Isra. Althea opened her bag and started rooting around. I think he's having some kind of allergic reaction. To what? asked Vago, leaning close. He ain't touched nothing since we got here just laid on top of them crates. He could be reacting to pollen, spores, microorganisms, or something else in the air, said Althea, producing a syringe from her medical bag. It wasn't the type that ended in a needle, but one made to be inserted into the RX-5's delivery system through an external port. One of those crates should have medical supplies. I'll need a breather. Bego got up and rushed to the bed of the crawler. 
He pulled one of the crates down and tried to open it when he saw the electronic lock in front. Isra pushed him out of the way. I will get it. You help Althea. The tone of Isra's voice, along with the fact that she shoved him out of the way, gave him a twist in his gut. There was a touch of fear there, and Isra was never afraid. Even if she was, she would never show it, or give another person that edge. Kronos, said Althea, holding the syringe in front of his face. I'm going to give you a shot of adrenaline. It should open your airways enough to breathe. Vago's head swiveled around to watch Kronos struggling under Althea's grasp, and then back to Isra, who was staring Vago down with raw determination. Kronos, said Althea, trying to access his RX-5. I need you to relax. I can't help you if you don't relax. Go help Althea, said Isra. You do not even know which crate to open or where the breathers are. I do. At that moment, Vega was compelled to ask what was in the crates. Isra went to such lengths to avoid corporation inspections, and she was afraid. What could possibly... Kronos bucked and flailed under Althea's grasp. She could barely hold him in place, much less insert the syringe. Isra motioned towards them. Go. Help them. I will find the breathers. Vago grumbled, but arguing the point at a time like this was poor form. Vago went over and knelt by Kronos, who was clawing at his own chest and breathing in short, shallow bursts. What's happening? said Vago. I think he's having a panic attack said Althea, still struggling with him. Vago held one of Kronos's arms down and pressed down on his chest. Kronos fought, but Vago was able to hold him steady enough for Althea to pull his green vest aside enough to reveal one of the ports on the medical regulator on his shoulder. She jammed the syringe into one of the ports and twisted, locking it into place. She leaned back and touched an icon on her Eros computer, and the plunger of the syringe started to descend. As soon as the medicine was in, Kronos took his first full breath in several minutes. Vago let go and said, You all right? Kronos took a few more deep breaths before he could answer. <gasps> I can breathe. What is happening to me? I don't know, said Althea. Am I going to die out here? Althea grabbed a handheld laser retinal scanner from her bag. No, you're not going to die. We'll turn back if necessary. She used her fingers to open one of Cronus's eyes, waited for the green laser to scan across the retina, did the same with the other, and said, Some swelling in the scalara. No infection detected in the blood vessels. Nothing to indicate anything more than a common allergen. Isra returned with a small, clear, plastic mask. Althea took it, slipped the strap over Cronus's head, and fit the mask over his nose and mouth. Try this for now, said Althea. It'll keep your lungs clear and allow you to breathe. How long, said Cronus, his voice partially muffled by the mask. Until we can determine the cause, and even then, only if we can find a way to eliminate or minimize the symptoms. Vago and Althea helped Cronus to his feet, and walked him to the passenger side of the crawler. As they got him settled again, Vago caught another hint of the odd smell. It was spicy and floral, but like nothing really found in nature. And it was stronger. Is everything all right? said Isra. No, said Vago in a low tone. We need to get moving. Now.
The next hour had an anxious feel to it. Kronos rode in the passenger side of the crawler next to Althea. His breathing through the mask was labored, and, even though he had barely moved since he fell off the crates, his face was flushed with sweat. Althea paused every once in a while for a quick examination. Retinal, blood, and swab tests all came back inconclusive. Althea didn't know what was happening, but she seemed to know it wasn't good. As a result, their pace had dropped considerably. The beach was gradually getting rockier, and the dark forest seemed to be looming closer and closer, providing precious little space to maneuver the crawler between the dense forest and the sub-zero sea. Add to that, the Triple T was starting to wear off, and the haze was setting in. Triple T made everything sharper. It made colors more vivid, smells more potent, and feelings more intense. But when the T started to wear off, it left the mind worse than it found it. The sounds of the waves churning the rocks were less distinct. The vivid colors of the forest started to dull. After the shard, his mind focused on every sight, sound, smell, and texture. Everything was in the now. Already, just a few hours later, it started to slip. Isra growled and pulled Vago from his thoughts. Progress report. Vago pulled up his sleeve and activated the screen. 3.45 kilometers over the last hour. Looks like we won't get there till... Vago stopped and sniffed the air again. Isra walked up behind him. What is it? The same thing you were talking about earlier? Vago couldn't identify the smell before. It was too distant, and the breeze from the sea blew it away before he could concentrate on it. But the way the coast curved and the breeze moved meant the source was downwind. He could smell it even through the beginning of the haze. Him and his terrible aftershave. Sergeant Carr. I think we're being followed, said Vago. Isra spun in the direction they came. Where? Who? Carr. I ain't seen him, but his scent stands out like a priest at a garrison. He's keeping to the force to stay out of sight, said Vago. Then we move faster, said Isra, with added force in her voice. We must outrun him, lose him somewhere. Isra, we're four people on a crawler. One of them's laid up, another has to stop to make sure that he keeps to breathing. The man out there is just one guy who moves as he likes. There ain't no outrunning him, and there ain't no hiding from him as long as we're out in the open. Isra looked back at the beach and the forest that bordered it. The way her face moved... Vega could feel the terrible ideas whipping around her head. Through the forests, then, she said. The direct route. It will be more challenging terrain, but he may lose us in the underbrush. Vago paused for a moment. That's crazy, Isra. It might slow him down a touch, but it's going to stop us near complete. Who knows what Laban will get up to if we're trudging through the forest for three days. But staying out here will do nothing but lead him directly to the city. If Laban learns that there is a civilization out here before we can contact the Ministry, he will find some way to keep it from them. Isra looked back at the dark forest that stretched along the beach, back the way they came. Our only hope 
is to lose him in the trees. Vago stepped close to her. He was a head taller than most men, and it was hard to argue with someone when you were looking up their nostrils. Isra stood just shy of his sternum. You want to lead this team into unknown and possibly dangerous conditions so as you can lose a corporate marine who don't pose much of a threat to us? A guy who's likely under orders not to mess with us? Isra's gaze didn't move an inch. Those are your orders, Vago. Then you best be telling me why. What the hell are you so afraid of? What are you planning that's so bad the corporation can't find out about it? What's in those crates? They are supplies. Enough for us for the duration of the mission. And some extra in case humanitarian efforts are required. Nothing more. I told you what is at stake here, and I intend to take no chances. The forest is riskier, but I made sure this mission had, in its ranks, maybe the finest interplanetary survival expert available. A man who I had to fight to include on this mission because he spent most of his time looking for gutters to pass out in. Isra shifted. She looked at him as if she might disassemble his brain with her look alone. But I did it. I did it because he, unlike anyone on Earth, actually grew up on another planet and faced the challenges associated with that. Did I make a mistake, Vago? Somehow, Vago's righteous indignation just slammed into the brick wall of Isra's rhetoric. He hated her a little bit at that moment. Vago turned to Althea, who was checking Cronus's vitals again. What about him? Althea settled back into the driver's seat. It's progressing, but I still don't see anything life-threatening. It's her call. Vago glanced back at Isra. Her gaze felt even harder. Vago sighed. You heard her. Make a hard left to the forest. With that, Vago headed for the tree line. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw leaves rustling in the brush back the way they came. They weren't going to lose Car in the forest any more than they were on the beach. The best he could hope for was that Car would stumble across something hungry, and that thing would be too full to come after the rest of them. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, the first book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Broken Reality by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license.